We built the first collections website in 2001 that did everything a collector could do. And there was massive arguments about, no, you need to talk to that customer on the phone. All of it turned out to be nonsense, really. At the end of the day, the customer just wanted to make a payment. Welcome to Collecting Thoughts, CNR Software's new podcast. We're your one-stop shop for digestible industry news, anecdotes, and advice as told by the boots on the ground industry leaders and subject matter experts. We'll be covering topics across the collection space, technology, and finance. I'm your host, Christina, and I'm happy to have you join us. Today's guest is Eric Ferguson. A seasoned industry expert with over 30 years of experience, Eric has worked across major banks, including Bank of America, Discover Card, Standard Chartered Bank, and more. Throughout his career, Eric has developed leading technologies for collections, marketing, and debt sales for all consumer and business portfolios. He's managed teams with thousands of employees, and his experience spans across NORAM and EMEA territories. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So today, topic of discussion, I want to talk about how a data-driven strategy can help transform a business's collection operation. Um, your background, I was looking at your LinkedIn, covers that from all regions, from North America to different areas in Asia. Before we jump into that, though, I want to know how you found yourself in this industry. So how did you get started in collections? Oh, funny story. So um, back in 89, I actually started as a collector. So I was on the phones and you learn the hard way, you know, all of the things that are necessary to be a good collector. Um, but you also kind of see the human perspective of it as well, which is something that's kind of taken out of context in many cases. So you understand on both sides of the coin, you know, both the collector as well as the person uh, that you're talking to, the customer, you know, where they're coming from and, and how this impacts their life. So it was actually, um, you know, I was close to Whirlpool. I grew up in the Southwest Michigan, basically. And uh, they had a, a finance company there and it was an easy job to get into, but then I sort of fell in love with banking and finance. So. Okay, great. And then you, so you started off as a collector and then you just stayed with the industry and grew from there. Yeah. So I worked in uh, Whirlpool for about nine years and uh, in various different roles and stayed in sort of risk management and then moved into uh, Bank of America. And there, you know, I worked more on the analytics team. We uh, drove most of the uh, model building as well as the marketing programs. And then I got a call from a friend that asked me to come over to help them on the collection side again from an analytics standpoint. And that's sort of, you know, how it evolves from there. Oh, okay. So you got to marry two interests mm -hmm. into yeah. what it is today. Oh, that's great. So the fact that you mentioned coming in on the ground floor and actually understanding the, the humanization and the personality behind collections is interesting. A lot of our guests say that, like, of course, when you go into collections, you don't really know what to think of it other than just maybe cold calling or depending on what kind mm -hmm. of resources the company has. But then you get to learn that it really is you're helping people through a vulnerable time or maybe just a time where they fell off into some kind of new territory and it becomes more of a human connection kind of experience, right? Correct. And, and you also get to understand, you know, things like uh, customer resources that are like credit counseling services, bankruptcy, et cetera, that in many cases, I would say, you know, I, I understand your situation. Maybe the best thing you can do is go talk to them because they can help you not just from our company, but from all of the debts that you might have, you know, rather than just the one that you have with us. Because to solve a customer's problem, in many cases, there's there's many, you know, fingers out there trying to grab on the money. And as a result of that, you're not really thinking through, you know, how to solve this person's problem as a whole. And that's actually a good segue into something I wanted to talk about, which is using a 
data-driven perspective to form solution-based workflows based off the customer. So customer centricity is key nowadays, right? We can no mm-hmm. longer just, I know people in the industry at my company have said like, oh, back in the day, you used to just separate them into can pay and won't pay. And that was mm-hmm. the only differentiator. And then maybe as we evolved, we put them into maybe like four unique buckets. But now customer centricity is so important that everyone has to have their own bucket of how to treat them to get them most likely to get back to financial good health. So could you talk about your experience with that and just the power of using data to create this persona-based outreach? Yeah, well, there's. It, it's ironic that you've kind of talked about the ability and willingness. And those are always two, the two balancing factors. Yes, um, that's true. We all want to, can we? <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's also, and it's something that goes back to my earlier years with Bank of America, is that we we learn very quickly that it isn't just necessarily ability and willingness, but it's also how you treat them. And I looked at it from like a clinical perspective to where everybody has the flu and you're going out there and you're trying to figure out what's going to cure this individual versus a placebo. And that might be a telephone call from a collector. It might be a an SMS. It might be an email. It might be a postcard. It might be you know, some special offer that alerts them to go to the website that you created for them to actually make some sort of payment arrangements because not everybody reacts the same way. So the most important thing for me was to learn, okay, how are they responding to the various different stimulus or treatments, uh, as you kind of point out, that will alter the outcome? Because, you know, there was this this concept that by finding the riskiest individuals and calling them the most, you're going to actually fix the problem and actually that doesn't actually solve anything really. In many cases, it might get you there a little quicker, but it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. And built into, ironically, into those scores is the fact that everybody's doing that same thing. (laughs) So so if you have a low FICO score, you know, the treatment's already sort of theoretically built in if everybody's a high risk and everybody's doing the same thing. So by altering that equation and looking at people, how they respond to a specific treatment, we were able to, at Bank of America, we were actually able to decrease our cost by almost 35% and decrease the losses at the same time by close to 5%. And this was on a, you know, many billion dollar credit card portfolio. So it was massive. And it was looking at things like, you know, as a result of a telephone call, do you actually cure at a higher rate? Do you stay the same or do you actually get worse in, in there's a strange irony that some people actually get worse as a result of a telephone call. They don't like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't want to be scared. Sometimes it's too intense for someone to actually be mm-hmm. on the phone telling them about something that they already feel embarrassed about or want to mm-hmm. maybe ignore. So that does make sense. Yeah. And additionally, if you think about the people in the earliest stages of delinquency, in many cases, it's, it's an oops. You know, they forgot. Uh, they were just forgetful. And, you know, if you think about who's the most profitable customers in your portfolio, it's the people that are revolving, that um, are arguably paying late fees as much as they, you know, some people might consider them to be evil, <laughs> you know, as a result of those things, they, they tend to be the most profitable customers. And so by working with them in a positive tone and manner in the earliest stages when, you know, it could be just a mistake later on when you make that marketing offer you know, they're going to respond positively to it because you were nice to them. So they don't see you as a department. They see you as a company. And so the data allows you to say, how do I treat you across all these different departments? 
you know, looking at you as a single human and every touch point, like maybe you went into a branch, talked to a customer service people, maybe you got a, a marketing offer and then a collections offer because you, you know, you, you thought you signed up for auto pay, but it didn't take, you know, there's all kinds of different things that happen there. And that culmination of all the various different pieces is what then changes your future behavior. And if you don't see that and you don't use the data to start looking at the customer as a whole, that's when you're going to fail. Yeah. You touched on something that we like to talk about a lot here as collections is an unexpected brand loyalty opportunity because mm -hmm. echoing what you were saying, if somebody is getting a phone call just because they made a mistake, they might be like, why is my bank highlighting this mistake that I made one time? I used to work at a mortgage company and when I would listen back to customer calls, there was a disclaimer that you have to say, which is we are a debt collector and people would get so mad because they were like, why are you telling me you're a debt collector? I pay my mortgage on time. So it's obviously just a sensitive topic, but if you treat it right and you, you help these people not just see the company, but see the collections team member behind the company that's giving them a good experience, mm -hmm. then they're more willing to look at that marketing offer that you mentioned when they, they eventually get to that point in the credit life cycle. Yeah, I mean, some of the best mark or some of the best collection strategies I've seen are actually signing people up for auto pay. They never go delinquent again. <laughs> so, yeah. so you're just saving yourself that telephone call. It's cost effective. And additionally, the customer is satisfied in the long run because you help them through a situation. And additionally, if you think it through, you can give them a discount um, when they sign up for auto pay and they're even happier. <laughs> so, so it's a win, win, win. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So things like auto pay and maybe sending them a text message, possibly relatively new things, at least I know text messaging. How throughout <laughs> your career have you seen technology and collections change from going back to that time of separating customers into will pay and won't pay to now where we're giving them so many opportunities to become current again? Yeah. So as I kind of mentioned before, you know, the most important thing before was to separate people into high, medium, and low risk. And then as a result mm -hmm. of that, you call, call the high, the, you know, the most and so on and so forth. And there was an arguable assignment of resources as a result of that. Now, the typical argument was that it works as a whole, but people were not looking at, you know, they were managing by the averages rather than going through and looking at things in a more refined manner to where you're pulling out the data and figuring out, okay, this works for 20% of the people and it's making 100% of it look, you know, good on average and you're upsetting 80%. And oh, by the way, later on, you know, when you start thinking about the long lifetime relationship with this customer, um, it's not going to go well. So, you know, some of the things were to start looking at the longer periods of data to where you're, you know, you used to only be able to store so much data before it was very expensive storage was. So 24 months of history was massive. And now today, you know, you could put everything on, on a little thumb drives and it fit tons of stuff out there and data is really, really cheap to store. That said, you know, it's looking at all of the various different tools that you have available to you today, SMS, when I first started using it, we used to have to pay for it because it was considered to be a marketing offer and the customer couldn't pay for the, your marketing. So, so it was a different animal altogether. And then we built the first collections website in 2001 that did everything a collector could do. And there was massive arguments about, no, you need to talk to that customer on the phone. You need to understand the reason for delinquency and all these various different things. And all of it turned out to be nonsense, really, because at the end of the day, the customer just wanted to make a payment. <laughs> you just, 
So, yeah. so why stop them? <laughs> you know, that's the one thing I never understood about certain collection strategies is that never get in the way of the customer trying to give you money. <laughs> unless, <laughs> you know, unless it's fraudulent money, of course, but you know, that's different animal altogether. But that said, get out of your own way. <laughs> so yeah, customers will always choose convenience over anything. Oh yeah. And you know, it was funny because we ended up, you know, I ended up getting interviewed by the Wall Street Journal when it first came out because it was something that was new and everybody thought, oh, this is crazy. You can do everything a collector can do. And in the first year we, we launched it, it collected a million dollars in cash and payments. And when I left in 2007, it was collecting close to 200 million a year. So, you know, it, it started evolving into doing all the various different things that they said only a human could do. And it allowed customers to just come in and do things on their own. And we were offering incentives to come in, Amazon.com gift certificates. I sent cookies from Mrs. Fields. I run, you know, goofy stuff. We tried it all. And I thought, well, if you're going to incent the collector to do this work, why not incent the customer to do it by themselves? So you started thinking about how that paradigm shifted. And then you layer in all the various different tools that are available to you today, or even, you know, as they evolved and you started to see how that differentiated you from everybody else. We later learned that in the long term, our marketing programs were drastically better as a result of it. Retention went up, you know, all of these various different factors that you couldn't necessarily measure as well in the past now are uh, significantly more profitable. Uh, the response rates went up, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, because of that interaction that you had with the customer up front that you turned into a positive. That's so fascinating that you created or were a part of creating the first self-serve platform essentially for collections. Mm -hmm. So you must have really been able to see how the scales were balancing between like, okay, all self-serve, all customers handle it themselves versus when do we have to step in and help because they need guided along? Like maybe we noticed they dropped off halfway yeah. So, I mean, if you look at simple things like how many times it takes you to call somebody and then potentially even get a hold of them, what you'll find is that many customers will come into their, your website and actually try to interact because they're afraid to talk to you. Mm -hmm. So what you're trying to do is to uh, eliminate any potential fear as well as make just life easier. And so that transition uh, from a, a person to technology sort of helped us in those cases to where people were just generally scared. And if you think about it in the long run, answering questions without getting badgered with a ton of collection type required things that you must say, because that's what the, they taught you in their job aid, <laughs> you know, those types mm -hmm. of things. A lot of people will back off as a result of that. And so this, this just took it and make it, made it a lot less, a lot more palatable, I should say, to the customer themselves. And then we were able to test a bunch of stuff within it, you know, like setting up, setting up settlement programs, payment programs, all this other stuff. They could claim that, you know, well, I have, I have a problem right now. And you're like, Hey, all right, how do we work through this? And then that's where you start adding in things like, well, how about a payment arrangement, uh, one twelfth a month or something like that, or 12 months for getting into a settlements and all this other stuff that are considered, you know, typically only done by humans at a later stage of delinquency. Well, you can actually do it there too. Or as a collector, you can say, well, when, you know, I'm only working nine to five and my collection operation is only open certain numbers of hours of the day. And oh, by the way, the website is open 24 seven. So it even adds to that capability as well, because they can go in and, you know, maybe they work the later shift or something, and then they go in and they can go online and test something or look at something and say, oh, okay, 
you know, and they don't feel like, yeah, you know, oh, well, it's that department's time schedule. I'm sorry, nobody's going to be there. So these types of things, you know, there's, there's so many different things that were layered into it. Um, and we continuously tested things over time to start to grow this capability. And, you know, it, it's sort of standardized now. You can do this. Oh, yeah. I was, that's what I was going to say <laughs> next. This thing that you got in on the ground floor of is not only commonplace now, but it's expected, which is funny because obviously with mm -hmm. all technological advances, right, you were met with what? Never. <laughs> and now it's always yeah. and has to be. Um, and now the next step that everyone in the collections industry and everywhere is trying to crack is AI, right? How can we make AI mm -hmm. enhance the self-serve platform and make it so customers can self-serve with maybe even more complicated instances on their own? Well, yeah, I mean, with AI and you know machine learning, you look at a customer, you know, starts to interact with you and then you can actually mold things on the fly a lot better. And that's sort of... I think some of the best things that could come out of this. So they, maybe you're with them on chat bot, you know, uh, however you set up chat today and then the interaction occurs there. And then you could say, okay, well, now that I know kind of your situation, how about we try this program or this program or this program, you know, you start off with, you know, one, two, three or whatever in terms of prioritizing offers. But in essence, you know, you can do all of this online at the end of the day you're kind of going through the mental exercise of what a collector would do, but potentially, you know, optimizing it a little better because you understand the customer situation a little better. All of these things sort of are molding into, you're, you're recreating what the human brain was doing many years ago, and you're just allowing it from a, a, diff a different channel. Yeah, it's like coming full circle with this little robot in between mm -hmm. all of it. <laughs> yeah. What is your thoughts just personally on where you think AI and the collections industry can kind of go hand in hand in machine learning. I know for all the conferences I'm going to, it's always AI, generative AI and machine learning. They always have their own talking section. So just from your experience in the industry and how you've been involved with data and analytics, where do you think it fits in? Do you think it's really going to be the thing that everybody helps take it to the next level? Or are we kind of going too to beyond what a self-serve platform is already successfully accomplishing. You're going to get to a point where it's just, the whole point of it is just to make it simple for the customer. The simpler it is for them, the better off you are. And getting out of your own way is sort of, you know, kind of what I was pointing out before. If a customer wants to give you money, if they have it, you know, then you have to start, yeah, get out of their way. So then the question is, is what's the most convenient way for them to do it? And do they seem some, see some sort of long-term value in the relationship that you have with them as, as a bank or, or lender or whoever. And as a result of that, you know, how do you then stack up? I mean, it's arguably it's game theory, right? So you're looking at, <laughs> you owe a hundred dollars to four people. And why do you choose one over the other? And one is going to be simplicity. The other one is long-term value. And how do you stack up and create that long-term value to that customer? And then that's, that's how they choose. It goes back to old economic theory of the normal, normal person, you know, the rational person. So why do they choose what they choose and when? So in the long term, you know, AI will just replicate that. Because mm -hmm. collector is an expensive tool. You got to train them, you got to pay them. There's incentives, there's, you know, sick time. There's all, I mean, nothing against a collector. I was one, but at the end of the day, it's probably one of the more expensive tools that you can use. If you can cure 90% of the people using simple tools, then okay save the other 10% for somebody 
that has more time and energy and actually can work with the customer uh, separately. Eric, thank you so much for joining me today here on Collecting Thoughts. It was really informative. I appreciate you taking the time.